So I don't know how to break this to you, except to just rip the Band-Aid off quickly. Um, your mama lied to you, okay? Let me just, I just got to tell you. And my mama lied to me, and it's not that they intentionally were trying to be deceptive, and they didn't even know that they were telling a lie. They were just passing on what was passed on to them. We call them different things like um, old wives' tales, like maybe you've heard that. Or we call it superstition or, or folklore or urban legends, like things like never wake a sleepwalker. Have you ever heard that one? That's a myth, right? But, but your mama told you. Uh, th- things like um, don't cross your eyes, they're going to stay that way. My mom told all the time, right? right? Remember, don't sit too close to the TV, right? Now we sit this close to monitors 24 hours a day. Right? They're, they're myths that we believe. What about this one? Don't swallow your gum because it takes how long? Seven years to get out of your stomach, right? It's not true, right? Science says it passes through just like any other food. I remember my mom would tell me that, and as a kid, I never listened. And I remember I'd go to bed at night just thinking, how much gum is in this? "Mm, How much gum is in there, right? How could it be wrong if it feels so right? It's just natural to swallow. Uh, What about this? This is my mom with Adam on this one. Um, Don't crack your knuckles because it will lead to arthritis. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah my, my mom, she was, she was just adamant on that. And yet, knuckle-cracking research, if we can call it that, has proven just the opposite, right? It, 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 it doesn't cause any type uh, of, of long-term issues. It's just nitrogen bubbles being released. Um, so as, as a way of liberation this morning, as a way of celebrating our liberation, I want us to all crack our knuckles on the count of three. Now, don't do, don't do it yet. Because I want to hear snap, crackle, pop throughout this room. And I know some of you are looking at me, you're like, you won't do it because you're sure mama was right, all right? You don't care what science says. But for the rest of us, as a community, we're going to celebrate the freedom and the liberation. So get your hands ready, ready, ready? On the count of three, everyone, ready? One, two, three. Jesus just set somebody free today, all right? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm sure of that. Uh, here's one that may resonate with you if you lived on the coast. Um, in order to reduce the pain and swelling of a friend who was recently stung by a jellyfish, you need to pee on them, right? <laughs> now, in a moment of transparency, who either has been the peer or the PE? Come on. Seriously? <laughs> uh, you peed on yourself. That may be a little better. So, it doesn't work. However, however, I will be honest with you, if my wife and I are ever in the ocean and she's stung, I'd still do it. (laughs) Just so I could laugh at her later, right? (laughs) All right. If you believe in some old wives' tale, if you believe in some myths, for the most part, it's no harm, no foul. I mean, maybe you miss out on the guilty pleasures of annoying people by cracking your knuckles nonstop. Or maybe you miss out on the ease of swallowing gum. But other than that, right, it really has very little impact on your life. But There are uh, some beliefs that have significant implications because a lie believed as truth will always carry the same weight as truth. And so believing a lie in a wives' tale, eh, not a big deal. But in some areas, there are severe implications, maybe things that you've been told or things that you've just assumed and now have been reinforced for 5, 10, 20 years. What's interesting is when you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus spent a lot of time pushing back on what we'll call 
spiritual old wives' tales. Jesus spent a lot of time pushing back uh, uh, on myths, especially religious myths. We see him confronting false narratives about God and faith, of who God is and what God is like and who God likes. He, he would say things like, you've heard it said, but I say. Right? This was his way of saying, I know what you've heard, I know what you've been taught, but you got it all wrong. And then he would begin to correct them. See, the first century religious system in Palestine, it placed an emphasis on rules and regulations. The spiritual leaders were the Pharisees, and they put a premium on outward appearance. And so faith became all about this outward behavior. Faith became all about following rules and regulations, and there were 613 of them in the Jewish faith. And what that meant is it, is it kept the majority of the people on the outside looking in. It was a religious system of the haves and have-nots, and it actually created barriers that kept people from God. And this emphasis on outward appearance, it meant that the temple or the place of worship where you were supposed to connect with God, the temple became an unsafe place. In other words, you did not, and under any circumstances, you did not talk about your pain, you did not talk about your hang-ups and your habits, you did not disclose your failures, and you certainly didn't reveal what makes you stumble. If you were sick or if you were poor at this time, if you were struggling, the common view of the day was you're getting what you deserve, that God is actually either judging you or judging your parents. That's why in John 9, when they stumbled across a guy who's been blind from birth, what did the disciples ask Jesus? Who sinned? This guy or his parents, and Jesus was like, neither. You got this all wrong. This is why Jesus and the Pharisees were always buttonheads. Right? They, they, they did not get along because Jesus came with a different message. And that's why people who were nothing like Jesus liked being with Jesus. And that's why Jesus liked being with people who were nothing like Jesus. Matter of fact, the only people Jesus didn't seem to like the only people Jesus didn't seem to like were people who taught other people that God only liked certain people. Those people Jesus had a real problem with. And so the Pharisees, they embraced this outward appearance of religion in an attempt to distance themselves from their own brokenness. And Jesus comes along, and he embraced authenticity. Even he placed a premium on brokenness, for it is in brokenness that we are blessed by God. Now, brokenness, it's not a word that we use a lot these days. Like, nobody wants to put, I'm broken on a resume. No one wants to be branded as broken. Like, like we know what to do with brokenness. We hide it. Right? Didn't we learn that as children? Like, if you break it, you hide it. And if you can't hide it, you at least reposition it so mom can't see it. Right? We've all done that. Because if mom finds it three months later, that was a little easier to deny. We know instinctively what to do with brokenness. We hide it. And yet Jesus came to the island of misfit toys because he believes that which is broken is worth repairing. We live in a throwaway culture, right? If, if something is broken, we get rid of it. No one takes time to repair the broken. We, we move on. Today, it's not even cost effective to repair things. So we just start over with, with something else, and yet Jesus values the repair process, the redeeming process. In his book, True Brokenness, listen to what William McDonald says. He says, usually when something is broken, 
its value disappears altogether. Its broken dishes, broken bottles, broken mirrors are generally scrapped or even a crack in furniture or a tear in cloth greatly reduces its resale value. But it isn't that way in the spiritual realm. God puts a premium on broken things, especially on broken people. I don't know if you ever heard of the phrase called kintsugu, if I'm saying that right. Kintsugi. Uh, it's a 15th century Japanese art form that places a premium on the repair. It's a Japanese concept of highlighting or emphasizing imperfections. And so if dis- instead of discarding something that's broken, the pieces are then joined together. But not just with, with any type of filler, they're joined together with gold. I have some images that I, I want to show you there. Uh, th- this is, this is kintsugi, right? The, the pieces are gathered up and they're joined together with gold. And here's what's interesting is the repaired version becomes a piece of art that far exceeds the cost of something new. And now we begin to see the truth of Ephesians 2.10 that says we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Hey, it's not that your cracks are no longer visible, but God takes the pieces and he puts them together and he creates a masterpiece out of our brokenness. We start a new series today called Stumbling Toward Wholeness. And the title resonates with me. Because the title is my story, and the title is your story. We are all in one way or another, we're all stumbling toward brokenness. It's, it's, it's all of our stories. Our story is a story of searching to be whole. And as we navigate the twists and turns of life, of our existence, we often discover that the path that we hoped would be smooth is not always smooth and unbroken. And we encounter obstacles and challenges that shake us to our very core. And we stumble and we fall and we break. And here, please hear me, here is where we find the paradox. For it is only when we stumble that we learn something about ourselves and something about the nature of God who finds beauty in brokenness. I just want that to rest over you today. Because we try really hard at this church to, to take off the mask and, and not put up a facade and not pretend. Like, like if you're broken, we'd rather have you say, I'm broken, and that's okay. Because you're in a room of brokenness. It is only when we stumble that we learn something about ourselves and something about the nature of God who finds beauty in brokenness. In other words, there is no masterpiece without brokenness. Where you stumble, Joseph Campbell says, where you stumble, there lies your treasure. Think about that. Where you stumble, there lies your treasure. Think of it this way. The place where you stumble is a window into your brokenness. And it is here that the masterpiece creation begins, if you will allow it. I've told you before that my father was a difficult man, and the only thing he knew uh, to pass on to his children was this idea of the value of hard work, and so he drove that into us nonstop. And what that meant is when a 12-year-old could not do the work of a 30-year-old or when chores weren't done on time or to his expectations, it was because I was lazy, and I heard that a lot growing up. And so my entire life, I, I carried this baggage with me, constantly trying to prove my father wrong, and it didn't matter how hard I worked or how much I accomplished or what I did at the end of the day, I would tell my wife, I still feel lazy. 
See, this is where I stumbled over and over and over again. And my response was to block out the voices by working even harder, thinking that if I could just do another accomplishment or the next win, that it would finally get me on my feet and I would never stumble again. I was quite literally trying to outrun, but what I needed to do was to sit in the place where I stumbled. Because it was in that place where I stumbled that once I began to dig, I realized something about myself and I realized something about God. And this is where wholeness began. It didn't begin by ignoring it. It didn't begin by hiding it or trying to run from it. It was found in the very place where I stumbled. And this is where I begin to find what God is really like. See, because prior what I learned when I sat in that place where I, where I fell was that I viewed God like I viewed my father. He was never satisfied. And so no matter what I did, God never approved. And so this has been my journey the last three years of learning a God that I don't have to perform for. Where do you stumble? What, what, what does that look like for you? Maybe you have a pattern of continually and constantly picking the wrong guy. What I want you to know, what I'm hoping you'll learn today, is that that is your place of stumbling. And instead of just picking yourself up saying, I'll try better next time, is to realize that that place where you stumble is actually a window into your brokenness. And the treasure or the wholeness will only come if you begin to dig in that place. I had breakfast with somebody uh, last week. And through the conversation, at one point he said, uh, he said, Marty, I'm just going to be blunt with you. He said, I don't like, old, uh, I don't like um, homeless people. He said, matter of fact, at one point he said, they, they make me angry. He said, I actually despise them. And he said, and so on his own, he began a Bible study to see what the Bible says about how we should treat the poor and how we should respond to the needy. And he said, I've been doing this Bible study, and here I'm in my mid-60s, he said, and God is still changing my heart. Like, he's not done with me yet. He's, he's, still, he's still shaving off the rough edges. God is doing something in me. Now, he didn't put it in these words, but what he realized was his place of stumbling, right? I despise homeless people. That place of stumble was a window into his brokenness. And once he began to sit in that place that came through a Bible study, the treasure was found right in the place where he fell. And so now he says, let me tell you how I'm ministering to the homeless people. He said, God's changing my heart. Listen, that should be true for every one of us. What is your stumble? It may be sin. It may be an emotional issue. I don't know what does that look like for you. But the treasure is found right where you fell. Luke's gospel, it tells of a time that Jesus was in the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And what we quickly learn is that although Jesus was in Simon's home, Simon really didn't want Jesus in his home. My apologies for adjusting this mic, it's killing me. But I haven't spoke here for most of the summer and somebody whacked it out. All right. um, that's why no one should use my mic. That's like we had this agreement. Uh, and so Jesus was in Simon's home, but he wasn't welcome in Simon's home. Now, hospitality was a big deal in this culture. Matter of fact, you would give to others and yourself go in need. That's just what hospitality meant. But when Jesus arrived in Simon's home, Simon did nothing. He did not greet him. There was no kiss on the cheek. There was no kiss on the hand. Nothing. He ignored him. 
It was the custom that you would wash the feet of your guests or at least provide a basin of water so they could wash their own feet. Simon did nothing. It was also customary that you would anoint the head of your guest with a sweet-smelling oil. It was hot. It was dusty. Nobody showered like we do as much today, and so people stunk. And so the oil was just this way of, of freshening them up. Simon did nothing. The, the, the customs of hospitality were all ignored. And so you begin to get this idea that there's a lot of tension in the room. There's an elephant in the room that nobody's speaking of. And then the narrative takes an unexpected turn when an uninvited guest appears. And she is a woman. And we are not given her name. She's only referred to as a sinner. Now, there's speculation as to what she's done. Some say, well, uh, we think she was a prostitute. Others uh, would say, you know, she committed adultery. Whatever it was, she was involved in that sin so much that it became her identity. And she is referred to only as a sinner in the city. Prostitute, adulterer, cheater, thief, sinner. She was known throughout the community. And she makes an appearance, and her appearance makes the room uncomfortable. And you, you know what that's like, where eyes quickly divert because nobody wants to catch eye contact with her. And then the all-too-familiar whispers start that she's heard much of her adult life. Do you know who's here? What's she doing here? Do you know what she did? Do, 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 do you know what, what she's like? And Eddie told Betty, and Betty told Freddie, but you can't tell Eddie because he heard it already, right? It just kind of worked its way around the room. And so she, she ventured into the unknown. A woman of her reputation would have never, would have never made an uninvited appearance in the home of a Pharisee religious leader. And yet she ventures into the unknown because desperation will cause you to do crazy things. So she steps into the unknown, to the unsafe, and the unwelcome. Now, we don't know what drew her. We don't know if she heard about Jesus earlier in the week. We don't know if it was the talk at the marketplace where people were talking about this Jewish rabbi that talks about God in terms of forgiveness and making broken things whole. But whatever it was, she had to press her way into the home uninvited because she had to see for herself. So she braves the ridicule and the disdain in hopes that her brokenness might be mended. We find Jesus reclining at the table as she makes her way over to him. and You can just kind of see a hush falling across the room. People want to know how Jesus is going to respond to a woman of her reputation. But there must have been something about Jesus that pulled her in. Something about Jesus that, that made her feel welcome. Maybe it was eyes that were full of compassion. Maybe it was a half smile or it was a nod or it was a, a motion to come close. And so she pushes past the crowd and she finds herself at the feet of Jesus and she cannot contain her emotions. The scripture says she just begins to weep. She doesn't want to give the room what they want. There's always those who rejoice in your brokenness, especially when they don't like you. But she could not hold it back any longer. And scripture says she just begins to weep and her tears are wetting the feet of Jesus. Each drop is displacing dirt and grime on his dirty feet. And she does the only thing that she knows to do next, and that is to let her hair down, right? A woman of her reputation can't ask Simon for a towel. Simon didn't want her there. And so she lets her hair down, which would have been scandalous in the day because this was an intimate gesture reserved for a husband. And she lets her hair down, and she begins to wash the feet of Jesus with her tears and with her hair. And you can imagine the gasp going on around the room. 
She takes a bottle of perfume that's around her neck, and she doesn't just put a drop on it. She empties the bottle onto her feet. It's symbolic of her pouring her entire life out before Jesus. And then Simon, in his disgust, he whispers, if this man were a prophet, if this man were of God, then he would know what kind of woman is touching him. You see, Simon, he was a rule follower. She was a rule breaker. And Simon was a behavior, and she was a misbehavior. And Simon was a lawkeeper, and she was a lawbreaker. Yet in a twist that nobody saw coming, Jesus rebukes Simon, and he praises the woman of brokenness. Now, I want you to catch something. Her stumble was some type of sin. We don't know what it was, but we know it was severe enough that it became her identity. It was in her place of stumbling. She didn't ignore it anymore. She didn't try to pretend anymore. She didn't hide in back alleys anymore. It was right where she stumbled that she began to dig. And forgiveness, she found, was right where she fell. Luke 7, 48 and 50. Look on the screens. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, and your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Listen, before we start the baptism, let me just ask you, who would you rather be in this scenario? Would you rather be Simon, who has the appearance of having it all together? He has the nice clothes, he has the nice food, he has the nice house. Or would you rather be the woman of brokenness? A woman of scandal, a woman without a reputation, or at least a good reputation. And most of us in the Western church today, if we're honest, we would say, well, I want to be both. I want to be respected. I want to be revered. I, I want people to, to see my life all put together. That's why we spend so much time on social media making people think we have it all put together. But they don't see the holes punched in doors, and they don't see the fights that happen before we get out of church. They, 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 they don't see the hidden things, but that's the appearance we want. We want, we want to appear respected, and, and we want the wholeness that Jesus offers. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you want to begin the journey toward wholeness, and we all do, the only way is through the door of forgiveness. The only way is through the door of brokenness. You're going to have to embrace the broken parts of you if you ever want to be whole. Maybe it's spiritual brokenness. Maybe it's emotional brokenness. Maybe it's physical brokenness. I don't know what that looks like for you, but what I do know is that your treasure, the forgiveness you need or the wholeness that you need, is right where you fell. And it is here, precisely in our weakness, precisely in our humility, that if we dig, we will find the treasure of God's kingdom. Today, as I told you earlier, we're celebrating the lives of 22 people who acknowledge their brokenness. They did not dismiss their sin. They did not ignore their sin. They did not run from their brokenness. It is here in their brokenness, in their humility, that they began to dig and they found the treasure of the kingdom in the form of a cross. They found the treasure of forgiveness and the promise to be made spiritually whole through the gift of salvation. Now, when the Bible speaks of salvation, I'll give you this, and then we'll start the baptism. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it's actually speaking of three separate events, but they also overlap, right? There's three phases of salvation. I told you this before, but it's important that you understand that. I'll use it 
with my own story. So the first is that I was saved. When I was 14 years old, I knelt by the side of my bed, 2043 West Morningside Drive, and I gave my life to Jesus. At that moment, Scripture says that, that I was justified or I was declared righteous. Not because I was righteous, not because of what I did, not because I deserve it, but Scripture's really clear that Jesus puts his righteousness on us. And so that moment that I said yes to Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus was placed on me, and I was declared righteousness. Righteous, not because I deserved it, not because of my actions, right? That's the first salvation. This is when we, when we think of salvation, this is what we think of. When someone says, tell me your salvation story, this is what they mean. But there's a second salvation, right? There is, I was saved, but I am also being saved. That's the second idea of salvation. Go to the next slide, Mike. I am being saved. And Scripture calls this sanctification. In other words, when, when, when I said yes to Jesus at 14, I was saved, I was declared righteous, and now since 14 to now 55, I've been in the process of being sanctified. I've been, I'm in, in the process of being made whole. I'm in the process of, of hopefully having a life that looks more like Jesus. In other words, think of it this way. I'm in the process of learning to live what I've already been declared to be. You are in the process of learning to live what you've already been declared to be. You've been declared righteous on the first salvation, and now you are learning to live what you've already been declared to be, learning to live righteous. Right? This is that second salvation. This is the transformation that we are all in. And then the third salvation, right? I was saved, I am being saved, and the third salvation is I will be saved. I was saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. And this is glorification, right? This is, this is when we leave this earth, when we get new bodies and we enter into a new eternity. Think of it this way. The first salvation, right, it's saving us from the penalty of sin, which is death. The second salvation is saving us from the power of sin, right? Sin begins to be weakened within us. And the third salvation is we're saved from the presence of sin. There is no more sin. Right? We enter into uh, 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 eternal bliss. Now, our challenge lies right in the middle. Right? This is where we live. We're all in the process of being sanctified. We're all in the process of being remade and renewed. He's changing our thinking. He's changing our heart so we look more like Jesus. You're learning to live what you've already been declared to be. This is the process that we find ourselves in. And this is part of the process of where you repeatedly find yourself stumbling. That, don't run from it, don't ignore it, that's where you need to dig so Jesus can continue the process of sanctification.